And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is Steve Gray, Managing Principal at Gray Value Management, who over the course of his career helped oversee a billion and a half dollars. Uh, Steve's specialty is he looks for extreme dislocations in the market, and I'm very excited for today's call or today's interview. Steve, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it. So, Steve, I always like to begin by asking, can you tell us your story, how you got involved in the business? Well, you know, I bought my first stock in 1980 when I was about 13 years old. Um, this was during the Volcker era. It was actually a utility stock offering a 13% dividend. Oh, wow. And uh, it was one of those things where I'd saved up, you know, about 500 bucks working odd, odd jobs and that sort of thing. And and uh, my father, who was a pilot by profession, was also a pretty keen investor who taught me a lot. And um, he got me interested in investing and, you know, he used to sit me down with the Wall Street Journal, and that sort of thing, and talk about what he was looking at and articles he was reading. And um, he was a corporate pilot who also happened to work for a guy who was a very, very astute, very successful businessman. Um, he was actually the individual who coined the term venture capital. Oh, wow. And. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it was a really privileged upbringing because I had a lot of exposure to business and investing via the relationship that I developed with my dad's boss, who, um, you know, sort of took a shining to me and would talk to me about what they were working on. And um, he didn't mind having me along on trips. And so I'd be hopping in the plane when I was in school and flying around with him and his team and they'd be doing deals and I'd be listening in. And, and that's really uh, that's the kernel of it. That's that's what really got me interested at a very early age. Nice. I mean, I could imagine almost like it's a, um, a dream come true, if you will. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in, in a number of ways, you know, I went on to, uh, you know, I, I went through undergrad at University of Texas at Austin, and then I pursued a law degree and then an MBA. And it was when I was doing my MBA at Columbia that I was fortunate enough to study under Jim Rogers, oh, wow. who co-founded the Quantum Fund with George Soros. And, and I would definitely describe him as a mentor. He really heavily influenced my investment approach, specifically when it comes to um, how I approach research and um, the, the, the rigor that you bring to that process. He was emphatic on that, and that definitely made an impression on me. How, if you don't mind, can you explain a little bit um, some of the lessons you've learned or how emphatic he was or explain how he looks at research? Well, a lot of it, you know, it's it, by description, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, you just want to be as thorough as possible. I mean, one of the, the mistakes I think investors can make is they think about it in terms of how much work they would like to do or how much time they have versus what's required to actually do a thorough, rigorous job. And what Jim taught us all in that seminar, it was about a dozen students, was that to be truly rigorous takes an enormous amount of time and effort. And that you don't, you know, we average at this fund between 200 and 400 hours of research per position. Oh, wow. And, you know, in a lot of ways, again, it's by description, it's fairly simple. We do everything humanly possible to avoid losing money. Gotcha. And if you ask yourself, are you doing that? Are you taking it to that extreme? Well, it kind of makes sense in terms of the broader picture, If you, you know, in light of your investment goals. If you want extreme outperformance, shouldn't that require extreme effort? Well, absolutely. I mean, it shouldn't. It's yeah, not absolutely. like it's something that should come easily. Right. 
And so he really, you know, he's an extremely rigorous uh, guy in terms of his thought process as well as the research effort. And like I said, that really made a strong impression on me. And it's it's always possible to go overboard, overboard in, in, in that regard. But um, we um, are very adamant about loss avoidance here. We definitely, we begin, we, we believe in winning by not losing. Understood. And preservation of capital is, is paramount. So I guess that's a good segue. If you um, can shed some light or explain your investment strategy for us, we'd greatly appreciate it. Well, the fund, um, which began its fifth year last month, is a concentrated, unlevered, long-short portfolio dedicated to the highest possible returns. And what it comes down to is, you know, if anyone can now own the S&P 500 for free via an ETF, it only makes sense to pay a fee to someone else if over the long term you're receiving something superior to that. Right. Now, because price is the primary driver of return, in order to capture outsized returns, you need to identify extraordinary mispricings. In other words, the way we describe it to, to investors is extreme profits require extreme mispricings, which in turn derive from extreme misperceptions. Where are those likely to occur? It's really two places. It's either something contrarian or something obscure. Okay. Now, on the long side, you know, you don't get extremist pricings unless the company or asset is extremely out of favor, right. which is, you know, naturally unlikely to correct very quickly. That's really the most challenging part of our business. The best investments frequently have the worst optics. But that's where you have to focus because that's where you get the mispricings at. Most allocators tend to equate price volatility with risk, but we manage for long-term profits, not short-term price fluctuations. That makes perfect sense. Um, a, a general theme on the show, too, from other people has been don't equate volatility with risk. Yes, that's yeah. absolutely the case. But it's also, you know, again, it come, getting back to sort of what Jim taught us, this, this focus on truly knowing and understanding what you own. If you don't understand what you own, then price is all you have left to react to. Right. You know, you, you may have the best opportunity all year for an investment in a position that you own declining by 50%. But unless you understand it fundamentally, well, how are you going to take advantage of that? What, what basis do you have for making a sound decision? And that's why we really see that the rigorous research and the analysis is really, it's not optional. It's, it's absolutely critical to being able to consistently make those decisions where you're generating profits and avoiding losses. No, makes sense. So, Steve, I guess the next question is, how do you handle risk? And what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Well, um, as I mentioned, we don't equate price volatility with risk. We, re we define risk as the likelihood of actual financial loss. And, you know, I think, you know, we run a concentrated portfolio of 10 to 20 positions. We think that that's, that's the key to outperformance. I don't believe anybody is going to pick 100 outperforming investments a year. Can we pick 10 to 20? Absolutely. 50? No way. But if concentration is key to outperformance, diversification is key to survival. Right. Uh, we like to say diversification is how we protect the portfolio from us. I think that if you're buying individual securities, the number one piece of advice is only know what you know and understand. You know, again, if you don't understand what you own and have a very detailed grasp of what it's likely worth, then all you can do is react to price fluctuations. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because if you don't know it, you're going to be blown out when the, when other people will be stepping in and taking advantage of it. 
you can do is have a large position in something you don't truly know and understand. Right. Another mistake that people make that we see um, among a lot of professionals, actually, is just shorting overvaluation. And it's, it's a little bit of an elusive point, but, you know, if a stock price has no logical financial basis, then any price is logical. Yeah, of course. You know, if right. something may be dramatically overvalued at $200 a share, but if that valuation isn't based on anything, you know, financial or economic, then why shouldn't it go to 400 or 600 or 1000? Right. And you know, guys are constantly in my business, they're they're constantly getting carried out on their shields by shorting something that is in fact highly suspect but can, you know, escalate in value dramatically before seeing a correction. You know, we just went through everything with the we work, which was not a publicly traded security, but you saw the uh, the hit that a lot of investors are going to take on that and already have. Right. No, it reminds me of Keynes's quote about the markets can remain illogical a lot longer than you or I can remain solvent. So it makes perfect exactly. sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So I guess the, the way you handle risk, if I understand you correctly, is by diversifying the concentrated portfolio. So make sure it's concentrated in the best of the best and then make sure it's diversified when you actually pull the trigger and put the positions on. Yeah, again, I think there's a, a considerable amount of humility that's required. You know, you have to you have to think about it in terms of protecting the portfolio from you. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, I mean, if we're human beings, we can do enormous amounts of research, but um, we can still be wrong. Right. You know, our our judgment is inherently flawed. We cannot escape our inherent weaknesses. Right. So how we look at it from a practical practical perspective in terms of what we do. If we do hundreds of hours of research and are extremely disciplined on price, two questions. How often are we likely to be wrong? And when we are wrong, how much are we likely to lose? So that's Because my... we're inevitably going to make mistakes. But right. if we're really, really rigorous in research and really, really disciplined on price, holding out for that price that by our estimation, and this is another way we talk about it with our investors, we're offered an irresistible risk reward. Then, when we are wrong, it's unlikely to result in a uh, you know a severe financial hit. And you know, we by way of being disciplined on price, we have positions in the portfolio right now that we followed for nearly a decade before pulling the trigger. Oh wow! It's it's about that price that offers you know a risk reward where you think it would be inconceivable to lose money. Now, again, your judgment is inherently flawed. Right. So right. even if you believe that, some of the time you have to be wrong. But if you spend an enormous amount researching the, the investment and you're really disciplined on price, you hold out and hold out and hold out, it's, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to lose a lot of money on any single investment. And again, it's, I think it's, for us, it's not about offsetting losses. It's about avoiding them to begin with. I think it's a lot easier to generate positive returns if you don't have to dig yourself out of the hole to start with. So that's a really good point, but it also brings up a question in my mind's eye. How do you know when you're wrong? So you talk about protecting risk by diversifying. You look for extreme dislocations. So you're buying things that are undervalued, if you will, or extremely undervalued. But how do you actually know and say, hey, you know what? I'm wrong here. Let me get out. If, is that based on fundamentally things have changed or is it just based on the market's not responding to your thesis correctly? Or how do you handle that? Uh, it's more the former than the latter, because, okay. again, with these extremist pricings, you know, if everybody, if every bulge bracket firm on Wall Street has something rated to sell, 
Um, odds are in a year, it's not going to be a strong buy. These things can take a long time to play out. Right. But when you see something change in the fundamentals, we were invested in a company that, um, for example, uh, it was a really, really attractive business, really strong annuity-like cash flows based on long-term contracts with a, uh, a blue-chip counterparty. Um, but that blue-chip counterparty, which was partially owned by a sovereign, wound up being engulfed in a scandal. Oh, wow. And as a result, those contracts were, were nullified. Okay. <laughs> and that's a great example. You know, you can do as much research as you want. No one saw that coming. Yeah, no way. Um, and then you just have to acknowledge it, react to it. Um, you know, you, you exit it as adroitly as you can, which is what we did, and, and you move on. Got it. So you just wait for that big fundamental shift to prove to disprove your thesis, and then once you realize that, recognize it and move on. And another thing, you know, touching on the same point from a different angle, you know, we we really focus on the financial fundamentals. We look at at balance sheet, cash flow, free cash flow, uh, not a lot of non-gap metrics. And when you're looking at investments that are attractive based on those metrics, where if you were able to buy the entire entity tomorrow, it would present or deliver a double-digit free cash flow yield. Well, that's something that is probably going to be, you know, pretty attractive, pretty solid as an investment for a long time. And also, and this has been the case with our fund, you know, you're looking for multiple tailwinds if you can find them. And when you're when you're buying something that's cheap based on the fundamentals and what is essentially a private market valuation, that means you have that whole constituency out there looking for them as well and potentially um, providing you with an exit, which, you know, a, a large percentage of our investments have actually been exited via takeout, somebody coming along and acquiring them because they see the strong balance sheet, the strong free cash flow, and they uh, they buy for those attributes. Yeah, the private equity would step in and they'd buy it for the same reason you're buying it, but they just take it over. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a exactly. really good, that's a really good point. <laughs> so I guess, Steve, what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, you know, I I don't want to be redundant, but it really is about knowing what you own and truly, truly understanding it. Um, You know, when you think about it, if if you don't know what you own, you're not investing, you're speculating. Right. And what we talked about as well with diversification, you know, everybody thinks about the one investment that quadrupled or was a, you know, a five or a 10 X investment. And, Oh, if only I'd had more money in that. Right. And then the next time they go to make an investment, they have outsized exposure. And if it doesn't go well, then that drags down the entire portfolio. And that's that. Which usually you happens. Know, it, Which there's is what a certain happens. amount of humility that you, you have to keep in mind. One of my favorite sayings, John Paul Getty once said that a man's opinions are only as good as his information. Right. That's really good. You know, we, That's really no good. matter how yeah. much time we spend on, on something, and we read thousands, tens of thousands of pages of filings. We don't use any Wall Street research. We do all our own research. We read the 10Qs and the 10Ks. We go back as many years as we can get them. You know, we have positions now, companies where we've got, you're looking at 25, 30,000 pages of filings that we have gone through page by page. Wow. Still, yeah. you have to ask, what am I missing? Yeah, look for the blind we never, spots. We, yeah. I probably ask myself that 50 times a day. Wow. But, you know, 
And the upside, you know, we've been in business now for just a little bit over five years, and we've had no impairments since launching the fund. Right. Well, congratulations. And let me beat you to the punch there. All that means is that we're overdue. Understood. <laughs> I realize that. <laughs> Spoken by a true Wall Street uh, professional who's been around for a while. Yeah. You know, with the, the earlier position I talked about with the sovereign counterparty and all of that, we managed to get out of that actually a little bit ahead, but that was, you know, a lot of that was ultimately, you know, some luck and, and, and luck does play a part in all of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, no, that's really good. So what are some timeless mistakes you see people make and how to avoid them besides not understanding what they own? It's, you know, I think for a lot of people, um, Let's, I, I'm stepping away from the subject matter a little bit. That's okay. You know, the step that should precede investment strategy is financial planning strategy. Okay. I think a lot of people, you know, maybe your listeners who are not professional investors, one step that needs to come before any kind of investment approach and, you know, discussion of strategy is, okay, what are my assets? How much money can I afford to have invested? How much money can I afford to have invested in assets that may fluctuate in value substantially in the event of, say, an economic dislocation? Got it. You know, if the worst thing in the world, it, it's funny, it's two sides of the same coin, but the worst thing in the world is to need capital, to need liquidity in a, in a market that is plummeted because right. then you're a forced seller right. by the same token you know i would love to you know have warren buffett's investment in cumin but i think that the advantage that overwhelms all others including investment skill in general is just having money when nobody else does right like cash yeah yeah that well, makes perfect sense so I think I think a lot of people they just don't think about it in specific enough terms in terms of their financial planning. Not only how much can I afford to have invested, but you know, based on my budget and my my needs uh, for liquidity for for capital, paying my bills and everything else for you know, let's say the next half dozen years, the next eight years, what can I afford to have invested in something that may drop significantly in value and 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 not recover for for some years. And I think that it's, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, given the, the financial repression we're, we're living through with respect to quantitative easing and what's happened with interest rates, right. people are very tempted for very understandable reasons to reach for return where they shouldn't. It's sort of like, I, w I, would, de I would describe the yield curve as sort of being like a ladder with all the middle rungs ripped out. Oh, wow. I love people that. People are reaching, they're reaching either, <laughs> That's great. Uh, you know, further in duration or right. further out in credit risk right. on the debt side than they should right. because they can't get the yield. They can't get a, an investment return, a coupon that they had assumed, that, you know, they weren't crazy thinking, well, I could probably invest my money. If I'm a retiree, I can probably count on getting at least, oh, I don't know, four, four and a half percent. They can't even find that now. And so they're getting involved in things that don't have the liquidity they should have, that are riskier than they should be involved with. And and this this follows the spectrum, right? I mean, yeah, you see pension funds are, right. you know, their their exposure to alternative asset classes, to private equity has been skyrocketing. Right. Now, they fortunately have a different time horizon, but... Um, I think for the average individual, this is something that they really need to to think about. And you know, I, I guess I 
highlighted another um, potential trap door in terms of letting the return that you want drive your decision. You just have to acknowledge that this is the market that you're in. Right. And, you know, if you can't get the return safely, then that's it. That's it. You're done. Yeah, exactly. Accept that. And, you know, cash is an asset class as well. Yeah, it is. A hundred percent. People should make the decision that, you know, best enables them to sleep well at night. Right. No, it makes perfect sense. You know, I was talking to a, a, a novice trader earlier today. He said, I've been trading for the last year and he's a long only kind of guy. And I said to him, I said, okay, great. I said to him, just be prepared that if the market does turn around, not here's the key word, not if, but when I said that on purpose to clarify and emphasize the point, be prepared that you have an alternative strategy. It's just like if you look out the window and it's sunny today and all you know is today, you're going to think every day it's sunny. It's never going to rain. It's never going to snow. It's never going to be anything but just sunny. And that's just not the case. So that really resonated with him and it speaks to your point and it just happened today. So it's fresh on my mind. So it's a really good point. Yeah. And, and to your point, you know, the more leverage we're seeing creep into the system and there's more leverage than we've seen at any other time, you know, the less of a breeze it takes to knock it over. Exactly. 100%. And so the more likely it is that it does get knocked over and the more likely it is that it's more disruptive rather than less. It's that whole Minsky moment thing where it's, you know, yep. stability breeds instability. Correct. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? <laughs> the more yeah. debt, more trillions of debt we pile on, the see what happens there. We, after. We're still finding opportunities. You know, our concentrated portfolio includes um, short positions as well. Again, we don't short overvaluation. We don't try to run a short book. We only we, we look at each opportunity on an ad hoc basis. Um, but I can say that in my career, I've I found more opportunities for shorting than I ever have. Understood. We have we have more short exposure right now than we've ever had in the history of the fund. Oh wow! And it's it's based on the fundamentals beneath the inflated prices. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Even I read this year, the last this past year, twenty nineteen was the one of the worst years for automobile sales with stocks at all time highs. Real estate in Manhattan's going down. All all this kind. Of, I understand your point. It's a very very good point. Oh, if you yeah. if you look closely in one of the areas that we've been focused on, if you look closely at what's going on in subprime auto, it's astonishing. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. And, and a lot of what you're hearing, it's it's amazing how much it echoes the um, the dialogue going into the housing crisis, where people are saying, "Well, houses never go down." Exactly. With the uh, with the subprime auto, everybody's telling themselves, "Well, people need cars to get to work. They yeah. won't default. They depend on their car too much to default." Well, nobody decides to default. Exactly. Let me wake up today and decide to blow. If defaults weren't impossible, they wouldn't be at the you know double-digit rate they already are now before the economy has entered in a contractionary phase. And with the S&P up 25% for the year. So imagine if that's not the case, and which will happen at some point. Well, I, yeah, I think people are um, – one of the things that they're missing is they're, they're conflating the financial markets with the state of the economy. Right. And, you know, you mentioned New York real estate. I mean, the stock market's going crazy, but you're seeing what's been happening with Manhattan real estate is, you know, that market has just been getting weaker and weaker. Right. The underlying economy is not performing nearly as well Correct. as the asset markets. Right. And that goes back to your point about the forced leverage, right? They're forcing investors to take risk because it's just, that's just how the system is designed right now. Better or worse. Which, to leverage, yeah. um, to touch on another aspect of the, the, the fund, you know, we don't employ any leverage. Oh, and nice. um, 
you know, one of the reasons we don't is because, again, if you have fallible judgment, I mean, I had a great professor, uh, another professor at Columbia, did, uh, taught the intro to finance class. And I always remember he, he just said one day, um, you know, leverage makes good times better and bad times much, much worse. Oh, I love that. That is so good. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, That's great. Like, the worst thing that can happen is is being in a position of being a forced seller when when prices have declined and using leverage is a great way to make sure you're painted into that corner. Yeah, hundred percent. Wow, that's a really really good good line. That's a good lesson too. So I, I guess on that note, it's a good segue. What's the best piece of advice you can share with the audience, Steve? Oh, geez, I uh, I don't know that I have any left. I, uh, <laughs> I you know I think I think it's you know it's the market's been democratized, but I think people should just recognize their their limits. Nice. It's, um, you know, particularly at a time like now where we're, you know, coming, we're, we're what, in the late stages of the longest bull market we've seen in, what, a century? Right. Um, you know, um, it's okay to be in cash. It's okay to protect your money and your assets. I That's not, you know, you're not, don't worry about missing the boat. Worry about protecting yourself. Again, because if, if there is a correction... There's nothing like having that capital aside when nobody else does. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I love it. Well, Steve, I love it. Um, thank you very much. I guess the last question here is what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Well, um, we have a website that's uh, gravym.com. That's G-R-E as in echo, Y, V as in value, M as in management.com. Um, you can find me, uh, you can email me at steven at gravym.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N. Our phone number here in uh, beautiful Singer Island is 561-328-9075. Be happy to hear from you if you want to talk. Excellent. Well, Steve, thank you very much for being on the show and sharing some of your knowledge with us. We greatly appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Adam. Likewise.